This is Michael Osterlink. Welcome to our radio. We explore individual and social transformation through collaborative action. I'm a psychotherapist with a transpersonal and somatic specialization. I'm also a transpartisan social entrepreneur, head instructor at SealFit's and Beatable Mind Academy, executive coach at Spartan 7, and director of human resilience at Aperion Zoe. Today's show is brought to you by Cosper Scafidi, an amazing body worker in North Virginia area, who has integrated different somatic practices into his work. You can learn more about Cosper at his website, www.cosperscafidi.com. That's www.cosperscafidi.com. Today's guest is Josette and Bob Lovemore, who have lived, studied, worked, and played together since 1979. They are educators who started several holistic education schools, a holistic learning center for families and children, and many whole family immersion programs in California and Oregon. They are adjunct faculty at Antioch University in the IMA program in social sciences, concentration in transformative learning. Together, Josette and Bob co-created and developed natural learning relationships, a holistic understanding of child development that supports optimal well-being in children and families. Natural learning relationships was the basis and philosophical foundation of the schools, learning center, and programs they founded, as well as the published work of six print books, five e-books, a magazine, and journal articles. They produced and hosted the popular podcast series, Meeting with Remarkable Educators. And these are two of the books that they've written independently of each other. And uh, Josette and Bob, it's great to see you guys. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, as we were joking offline, it's probably been 23 or four or so years since we've actually been in person together. Uh, I believe we met when you guys were on tour with Joseph Chilton Pierce. That's right. We were, we were introduced to one another by a mutual friend in the Bay Area and um, had a lot of commonalities at the time. And I guess we still do. I'm listening to your bio. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely still do. Uh, you guys were actually very instrumental in a lot of my thinking when it comes to understanding childhood development and my work actually back in the day as a marriage and family therapist. So I do want to acknowledge your, your influences on me, which continue to this day. Um, before we get into like what you're doing today, talk to us a little, each individually maybe, a little bit about how you got into education, how you got into understanding or wanting to understand the dynamics of childhood development and, and the contextualized within families. And that's not a normal career path, <laughs> especially the way you guys proceeded in your paths. It, thank you. I mean, that has always surprised us that for the last, gosh, 40 years now, we've been able to, uh, to actually uh, develop and live a career um, based on this. It's, it's a pretty simple understanding, but it does require a switch in, in a way a person looks at life and looks at oneself in order to truly engage natural learning relationships. And the switch is we're going to move from behavior to the consciousness of the child. That is, instead of getting uh, involved in how they behave in these studies and surveys and that sort of thing, we're going to say, how does a child organize the world? And in order to do that, we want to look beyond just the um, local or national, but uh, the cultural, but also to the what we're going to call the natural 
And the word natural simply means that which we're born with. So what are we born with and how do we get past or see around or understand more deeply uh, the nature of, of children? How do we see through their eyes? How do we feel through their hearts as, they, as we naturally unfold um, with, without getting too mired in the conditioning, in the culture, and certainly in the behavior? Behaviorism and that whole approach, that reductionist approach, really limits the way that we engage children and it leads to an adult top-down uh, approach. We'd rather go, how do, we, how do they see the world? And so we engaged uh, questions in uh, anthropology, cultural and physical, brain research. We engaged questions in spiritual philosophy, evolution of consciousness, as well as pretty sure we covered all the developmentalists who came before us and we came to see that there is this uh, humanness if you will and we've been able to bring it to various uh, constituencies there's never been a, a population or a constituency or a demographic that hasn't been able to step outside for a moment and see children as they unfold and it changes the whole focus to go, okay, I'm seeing through a child's eyes. We're on the same side. Life has challenges in it. But if we meet those ways of seeing in the world, which change, of course, as we grow, as in all natural creatures, then we're on the same side and well-being becomes our focus, not pathology or uh, modifying behavior. Joseph, do you want to add to that? Sure. Um, one of the things that I've, uh, after many, many years of working with families in whole family immersion programs on the land-based center we once had in California, I came to see that adults who actually um, practiced child development principles with their children and brought it into their families, that the adults were changing as much as the children were. And that, so I did my... Um, doctoral research on adults who, that one, yeah, that book, <laughs> Grow Together, Parenting as a Path to um, Greater Wisdom and Joy and Self-Knowledge. The um, interesting thing is that when adults put themselves in a position of really supplying children's developmental needs at whatever age child is before them, that we often come face to face with deficits from our own childhood or, or assets. And uh, inevitably, the adult will, who's willing to um, self-inquire, self-question, take that on and take a look at how they came to their ideas of parenting, which quite often come from our own childhood experiences, that they could make conscious choices or conscientious choice to leave that past behind and go forward with what's happening with the child today, with some of the new things that they're learning in how to nurture what's organizing in the child in today's world. So um, one of the things with all my students when I'm teaching courses are marvel at is, oh my God, I can, I'm still growing, I'm still changing. Of course I grow with my children. Of course I have the opportunity to shift with them as they grow. I can change my language. I, what's called upon me begins to 
to call something forth in a deeper place for me. So changing with our children or learning that we grow together is um, a surprise for many of my students, but also uh, a lot of people will say, this makes perfect sense. Of course, it's been happening this way the whole time. I, I would imagine since you guys have been doing this for around 40 years that you've seen, inter, use the words deficits, so I'll just stick with that, intergenerational deficits disappear uh, from like the next generation that emerges and even probably the next generation that emerges. So I have to imagine that some of your early students are now grandparents. <laughs> Takes us a minute to decide who's gonna talk. <laughs> yes, we have. And um, to this day, we get um, Christmas cards from people who we've uh, had in immersion programs over 39 years ago. And it's delightful to see that their children have graduated from college. Some of them actually are friends with me on Facebook and I'm getting to see that they're pregnant and having children too. And they're saying to me things like, the things that my parents did with me, I'm going to do with my children when uh, learning about development and nurturing kids in this way it was so different uh, from me, from what my friend's parents were doing with them, that I want to do this with my children too. That's fantastic. That must be so like, touching your heart to see the generations continue on with, with the work that you've opened their eyes up to. It is. It certainly is. Thank That's you. Great. So, you know, your approach, which is a developmental, evolutionary developmental approach, as you said, looking through the eyes of the child and how they make meaning and how they operate in the world, and then it's staged because they, you know, they grow into new ways of being in the world, is not a model that is naturally uh, accepted in the industrial mechanistic paradigms which, which our, our culture usually operates in. And I'm curious, like, what kind of uphill battles have you had to deal with uh, in order to kind of spread maybe just a few um, when, you, <laughs> when you say that i mean there come the uphill battles raging in but I'd, I'd like to just share one that just came to mind because i think it's especially appropriate in our um, current uh, challenges with the virus and that is I, I can't, must have been in the middle 90s, had to be middle, early 90s. And we had developed a program to put natural learning relationships online because we were very dedicated to independent uh, learning, to uh, homeschooling learning, and we knew it was growing. We'd been uh, keynotes at conferences and that sort of thing. And so we developed early, I mean, it still was like dial-up modems kind of early. Um, in terms of like, here's, here's, here's the, you know, just this enjoyable program that people could use as reference, they could communicate with us, us, with us in it, and you can see all the framework here um, that has since evolved. Anyway, so we actually found a couple of um, school districts in California that were willing to do this with their, with their more remote students, and it was a win-win. They would get the state aid, we would get a little bit of a cut, and the families would get this tremendous support. Well, the superintendent of one of the schools decided that distance learning would never, ever, ever happen, that it's not learning at all, and actually called the bigwigs from Sacramento to come down and challenge us 
uh, as to whether we could do this. And they found these legal reasons about, you know, the way the, the businesses were interacting. And they just completely squelched us. We had several uh, contracts and it was growing. And then all of a sudden it was, no, California says you can't do this. And it was just completely cut off. So you guys are well, on that one that just came edge. to mind that I think is apropos to this particular moment. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, it, it, would you guys mind walking through just briefly the model? Because I, I really want our listening and viewing audience to understand what it means to see through the eyes and, and beingness of a child staged, staged developmentally. Okay. So um, one of the one of the we we are learning so much as we grow in this, Michael. I just want to make that really clear. This is not a staid, fix it all understanding. This is a way of engaging the emergent, growing nature of self, child nature, and so on. And for instance, right now. I don't even like the word stage because the boundaries and the whole history of it is too confining. So we're really talking nowadays about fields of knowing. And that allows us a much more engaged event. And to know something now is not some data retrieval, data regurgitation. It's not data driven. It's, you know, only marginal or not marginally, but, you know, just a bit of data driven. Knowing comes from the word ken which is kin, which is what we're deeply familiar with. In other words, it talks about a whole being knowing. And much of the previous development understanding was, uh, you know, reductionist and sectioned out, emotional this, and you can still see it in the emotional, um, in the rage now of social emotional learning. Emotional this, cognitive that, physical this, and, you know, there's some bit of art you know, thrown in, not a notion of what is, what is, and I'm going to use the term spiritual, but what I really mean are the values, the non-quantifiable uh, uh, issues, um, love, community, values, devotion, all this stuff that gives us meaning <laughs> and enjoyment and, and this tremendous openness in life. And that was completely ignored. So we stopped and we looked at that. Um, uh, across the board. And so we came up with the understanding that in each of these fields of knowing, there's an organizing principle. That is that there's a central a way that from which the children see that if that organizing principle is connected to then and nurtured, then the all the natural talents, whether they're intellectual, emotional, or whatever, they unfold quite naturally. And so we, again, we looked cross-culturally and we looked in all these different ways. In fact, I remember this wonderful time I had with the head of the Lakota Nation uh, uh, Education, who, after we talked about the way we approach it, he said, well, here, look at the shield. And on his shield, he, you know, he was able to make cross-correlations quite strongly. So these fields are unfolding. And they each have an organizing principle. And if we nourish that organizing principle, then we have the best chance at well-being and the talents to flourish. So I'm going to say one more thing before I turn it over to Josette. And that is that nourishment here is not a confining, this is the way you do it, here's the template. But 
in the same way as in physical nourishment. You got, you, we have to have protein and vitamins in a child for them to grow healthfully, but there's so many ways to do it. It's exactly the same. There are ways to nourish psycho-emotional, human-to-human being ways to nourish the organizing principle. And it, you can do it from any, you know, you can do it from any background because it's pretty straightforward that way. So Josette, you want to pick it up at all? So one of the things that uh, we're, we put forth to families and to teachers when we're teaching in schools is that our job is to create the environment for the child to access these uh, nourishments that they need for the organizing principle to come to fruition. So as Bob was saying, we're born with natural capacities. That is in us. And at each age of our lives, there's an unfolding where that capacity becomes available. What happens is the child searches the environment for the right nourishments for that organizing principle to be accessed. So from the early developmental stage or the earliest developmental stage, in broad brushstrokes, there are four. And of course, there's delineations and, and specifics in each of the developmental stages, which we won't get into here today. But at the same time, I can at least talk broadly about the organizing principle for early childhood, which would be from conception to around the age of eight or seven, seven or eight. And the child there is organizing a sense of place in the world. So they're looking for the relationships with others that allow them to explore sensorily, to allow them to experience their world from the senses inward. And many developmentalists were able to identify this early on, but the organizing principle is to organize a place in the world, to organize a sense of belonging and support from the primary caregivers of their lives. From that developmental stage into the next, which is nine through 12, and there are things that happen along the way within there, the child now is organizing a different uh, part of their brain, a different part of their mind-body system. And the primary focus of the organizing principle is a relationship to trust and relationships with others. So how do I organize trust for myself? How do I organize trust of others in the world? And what kind of nourishments do the child, does the child need in order to do that? I'm gonna pause for a second and let Bob. Okay, Michael, excuse us for any uh, technical stuff. It's kind of unusual to do this in this way. So I hope it's okay. Really fine. Okay. So, um, so, let, so then just moving on, because of course we have limited time here. In the early teen years, we're looking to organize around autonomy. Now, autonomy is not rebellion. Autonomy simply means self-government. And if again, this whole thing about terrible twos or moody eight-year-olds or, you know, difficult teens. 
That's all because it's malnourished and those behaviors, and this is how you can see that the behavior should be undermined, that, uh, or should not be considered, uh, it, it's a clue, it's a symptom, it's a point, it's a, you know, it's an arrow pointing at something. So if, when, uh, there's never, a, it's all interconnected, it's always interconnected. The essence of natural learning relationships is to remember that we never were separate, we never were separate, and any idea that we could be separate is absurd. So, and then in the later teen years, and we, we're looking here all the way through the age about 23 or so, the organizing principle is interconnectedness. And now step back for a second and, th and look at this. So we have Rightful place or belongingness, yeah. and then it moves to trust, and then it moves to autonomy, and then it moves to interconnectedness. And now perhaps we can allow for the long childhood of, of, of humans, and perhaps we can see that each of these are aspects of our complexity that allow us greater and greater uh, connection to our world, our consciousness, and so on. So it's a it's, it's, it's a, uh, uh, an opportunity, if you will, to allow that whole human at any given moment to be nourished and come forth in well-being, knowing that it's, we're not separate, knowing that we're always interconnected. And what I heard Josette say earlier, you know, let's just say you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s, or 60s, and let's say, you know, you had some malnourishments in one of those four areas, it's not like that's locked into your brain, mind, nervous system, and there's no way for you to change. And in fact, if I heard you correctly, Josette, if you have children and you provide them the environment for them to flourish, the nourishments that they need, it's, a, it's kind of like a process that also feeds you and can nourish and heal you from your own deficits. Is that a correct way of exactly exactly what happens yeah uh, there's a there's a false notion that somehow or other we are finished when we get to the be adults and we're stuck with whatever our childhood experiences were and that is just not the case that when we uh we can revisit at any point in time in our lives what we what requ what's required from us is to question is to inquire not from a standpoint of being critical or judgmental so we're going to leave judgment out of this, but from a standpoint of being of open inquiry, how did I come to decide that this was the way it is in the world? And we find that when adults um, re, uh, to provide for children the, the environments to nurture their developmental needs, in, in the early childhood years, the adult can also reorganize a deeper sense of place in the world, a greater sense of personal strength. And eventually compassionate action for the benefit of others. In those middle years, those, those nine through 12 years, adults have the opportunity to develop and organize a deeper sense of self-trust, which in this world, a lot of us um, in, in our childhoods that was hindered and, and hurt in some ways. So reorganizing trust allows us to have greater empathy for other human beings and to have um, a complexity of emotions available to us and in a larger sense a greater sense of ability to love 
and a greater ability to act compassionately towards others. In the teen years, when we provide the correct environment for teenagers to organize a sense of, of personal identity and a core nature that is in line with who they truly are, we have, uh, as adults, by the way, organizing an environment for teenagers can be challenging because teenagers challenge, but that's the heart of social change. So there's a really good part of that there. And we develop a new, a, a deeper sense of our own autonomy, an authentic sense of self, greater social ability. And that gives us an opportunity to, to um, develop with children um, deeper insights into ourselves and consequently into humanity. Did you want to say? Does it require children to, does it require an individual to have children to nourish themselves or can they get it in uh, other types of relationships with adults like uh, their spouse or friends or oh, a sure. therapist? Oh, sure. I, I, when I was doing my dissertation, one of the things that I was working with my advisors on is my focus is on adult development with children and that's my research. It's been my research and that's my work. But adults have the opportunity to develop throughout their lives. It depends on the adult's willingness to engage um, themselves with their partners to question themselves and to self-observe, do self-inquiry, and to um, so we can develop with you know as adults if we're willing to take that on. Is there any recapitulation of those four fields? naturally in adulthood? Um, <clears throat> in, a, in, a, in the largest sense, our, our work, and in this way, it's a little bit anecdotal. Um, our largest sense has been, is, uh, well, first, what happens afterwards is somewhat, is, there is a huge influence of what came before. So, of course, the, uh, we have to go back. In other words, we're not going to go through these deeper expansions unless we have some sense of rightful place, some sense of trust, some sense of autonomy, and we know the interconnectedness. And again, I use the word know very profoundly, I hope. Yet, at the same time, there's been all this work done in evolution of consciousness. Um, right now and it's a very it's a fecund field it's a wonderful field and it's very uh exciting and we are ready to say out loud and have begun to say out loud that those fields of knowing in childhood are a recapitulation of the evolution of consciousness in our species and the brain research supports this and the cultural anthropology supports this. And of course I could go on here uh, for a bit, but we're not, this is not a, uh, you know, this is not just another parenting approach, if you will. It's a way to know ourselves. It's about self-knowledge. It's about the wholeness of who we are in ourselves, in our relationships, and in a larger sense as a species. That's amazing to think that it's recapitulated, not just in individuals, but in our species over the you know, totality of the time we've been on this planet. 
Yeah, wow. they, they're, they, you know, when you mention deficits, of course, that leads to, are we doing this? Are we doing this right? And there were two major jumps that really kind of just kind of tossed us into what else is there to do. One of them is what Josette has been talking about, that what happens for all us to meet these needs. So it's not about bringing up the children. And then the second one is to realize how, what a, what a tremendously connected way of, of our, to, to just our whole evolution that this allows. You know, um, when I introduced you two, I talked about your, your, you've done centers in Oregon, in California, you've done a lot of work in, in, on the West Coast, but I also know that you're also working with the Tibetan government in exile. Um, would you mind talking a little bit about your work with them? Sure. Uh, through the university that I, we both work with, we got introduced to a, uh, by a mutual friend to a woman who works in Tibet, or actually in Dharamsala, India now, um, with the Tibetans in exile. And she, was, um, she works at um, Sarah College for Higher Tibetan Studies in women's studies. And she, uh, the uh, principal of the school uh, approached her and said, can you, can you find someone who understands child development? Because our teachers really need to have an understanding of child development, but not from a reductionist perspective. Can we, can, can, is there a possibility that somebody might come from a, a little bit more of a holistic approach? And so we were introduced to her and then she introduced us to the, we did a Zoom conference just like this. Uh, in with Damsala India with the principal of the school. He was so uh, uh, excited about what we were sharing with him, which is a lot of the same thing we're sharing with you. And that that for adults who continue to do this, a wisdom is a possibility in the reasonable uh, development of uh, the reasonable being years of childhood, but also for the adults. And he said, that's exactly what I'm looking for. So we arranged to um, seek funding, which we had, had done successfully, um, particularly from a foundation that um, was very uh, sympathetic to our work. And we were all set to go over there. We had tickets for March, uh, uh, mid-March, 16th, I think it was. And four days before we were about to leave, all COVID-19 shut down all borders. India shut down their borders. The United States was, no flights were canceled all over the place and we couldn't go. So uh, we were very disappointed. We were bringing our grandchildren with us. It was a, it was a major expedition here. And so what we decided to do was, okay, fine. We can't go to India, that's pretty clear. But until we can go, what, what, what happened was the principal of the school um, had assigned to us a translator and we had been having conversations with this translator prior to going to kind of prep her to some of our languaging, to see if it translated well to some of the ideas so that she could get a little bit familiar with because she was going to help us translate while we were in India. So we decided, okay, she is the, um, the head teacher of the teacher training department in Sarah College. So we are going to work with her through Zoom, which is what we're doing right now, is we're giving her a preliminary course so that she can translate some of our documents into Tibetan 
for the teachers for when we do go there. But what's happening is as we're talking to her about some of these approaches, she's getting so excited. She said, well, I want to teach them right now. This is so, this is so important. And so we're, we're working with her to slowly help her to understand some of the basic principles and to see how well it can translate. And actually what's turning out, she's saying this is going to translate very well. I'm going to, this is going, the, these are our basic philosophy of life is very similar here. And especially this understanding that we're all developing together is, um, it, it, she's very excited about it. So we're continuing to train her and work with her using the internet, which is how we're working with just about everybody now. It's the sign of the, it's the times and it's what we have to do. I also mentioned too that uh, you guys teach at Antioch. Can you just briefly talk about the program you teach in? Well, we teach, we teach natural learning relationships with Antioch and we also do directed studies uh, with small groups or, or uh, single groups. We actually were just accepted as a core course in their, what is it, the Independent Master of Social, social Science. Science. <laughs> Independent Master of Arts Social Science Online Program in Transformation. It's a mouthful. <laughs> so, um, but uh, we, we, we do that, but also do directed studies. So for instance, right now, I, I have two directed study people that I work with. One is, uh, lives uh, half his life in Shanghai, uh, China, and um, where he's uh, a very interesting man who's uh, working on bringing a sort of a greater consciousness to business, uh, to people who want to do business in China. And another is with a woman in the Bay Area and in Rites of Passage. And Rites of Passage has been one of, uh, natural learning relationships has many, many uh, uh, places, what's the right word, expressions and, so on and um, natural uh, rites of passage is something that's near and dear to my heart and our hearts. And we've done many, many of them with people and they're just tremendously liberating when they're done correctly. You've written about that too, if I remember correctly. I wrote about it and the book was about to be published. And then the, uh, the house that it was publishing, it was bought up by a bigger house and they actually burned or you know, stop the book's publication at the last minute. You talked about challenges as we've got along here. It's just Sorry been amazing. Oh, man. Really. But you know, I'd like to make a, a point about the Tibetan experience. And um, first that they could recognize that a consciousness approach, that could, because we made it really clear, we are not Tibetan Buddhists. Um, we respect it, we've certainly studied it, and we can see all the correlations, but we're not sure if you can. And I went through some pretty strong conversations, really making the point over and over, uh, because we've been with other uh, spiritual intentional communities, specifically the Ananda community uh, in Northern California. And we actually helped them get their school reorganized and oriented in the proper way. And then the <clears throat> religious, the hierarchies came down and said, this is not Ananda. So I didn't want that one again. That was once of those was enough. Um, so it was great. But it also points to 
the universality of what we're saying because uh, for instance we've worked with strong uh, communities here uh, that support uh, the african-american community or josette worked uh, diligently with social service agencies that deal with the bottom five percent in, in income uh, in oregon and so on and every one of them found that sharpens their programs in other words these are really good people very intelligent people and they've gotten some really great stuff going, but it's a little out of focus and they run into these problems. And I say, well, if you just step back and bring this sharper focus. So we've seen many programs right across dyslexia, just many, many programs that have been able to say, okay, I can just do what I'm doing is great, but if I sharpen it and speak in these ways or create these kinds of relationships or start off my activity in a certain way, then, um, then they've had much, much more success. I would imagine it reduces the medicalization, the psych psychiatricization of, of children in some of these programs by going your way. <laughs> yes. Well, it's been really interesting because um, when I interview adults, they say that they learned how to trust their children more and to listen to their children more. And the children then start to shine and start to come out more and start to you know, offer their families more of their, of, you know, children have a lot to offer. And I, I think that um, in the old paradigm in a reductionist paradigm, it's always thought of as that the adult is teaching, doing something for the child, that we are raising children. And we don't see it as a, a mutual uh, development process. So uh, when children start to see themselves as valuable, they start to contribute more and they develop a sense of themselves as having a valuable contribution and even in terms of social justice, which is a topic that Ba has, has um, brought to the table in a strong way. That when children are valued for the contribution that they make, they are more willing to make uh, and step into social justice for others. That's fantastic. If we have a second, Michael, I'd like to kind of, ex can I expand on that for a minute? Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's just that, it's not just that they see it, it's that they are already socially just. And this is something that's, that's kind of hard for people to understand. That I remember when I was being interviewed by this uh, nonprofit that uh, I was mentioning deals with the large uh, African-American community. And, um, and uh, in the room, because they're very particular about who they would allow to participate, to do, they, you know, they have a lot of success and they want to be careful who they bring in. And so when I was talking about in one particular stage of development, uh, the field of knowing between eight and 13, and I was saying, and I was telling them that if you nourish this child correctly, they won't even think that uh, you know, these, these intolerances have any place at all in the world. They'll go, what, why was that ever done? Because that their natural moment is trust and connection. And that's what has to be nurtured. Um, and so I even went so far as to say, well, I just don't think even teaching a lot about the history of blacks in America is appropriate until maybe a little bit later than say nine, 10, 11 years old. 
and a hush. <laughs> there were about 30 people in the room and it, it became very quiet. And then they really did ask some very, very important and intelligent questions. But we don't want to stuff these kids that way with the history of the problems. We don't want to teach about ecology from a global warming perspective or a climate change perspective. We don't want to teach, you know, at different ages, you do different things. You don't, you don't have to uh, teach a 10-year-old about soil composition. Just take them into a clear cut and let them write from their hearts uh, a poem. Let them draw something. Then take them into an old growth and let them do the same. And let them then tell each other and show each other what they each came up with. What? <laughs> and then, of course, it's right there. So as you can tell, this is near and dear to my heart. And it's a mistake so many educators make that they have to teach these things rather than draw them forth in a natural way. Well, and what I also hear you saying is, is your approach is holistic as opposed to siloed, you know, uh, which leads the child to have the experience from within without, as opposed to like rote learning in these silos, which mean nothing really to them in the long run. Except being able to pass tests given to them by the state, I guess. <laughs> yes, teaching to this test is, has been the downfall of true education and awakening in the child a love of learning. Um, and I think that's one of the things that uh, our industrial age has gotten into mass producing classroom environments to putting 25 and 33 children in a classroom to the point where teachers are inundated with delivering a product to children and then testing them into their tell as to whether or not they've retained it. That is not learning and that is not inspiring children from the inside out to engage their world. And so uh, that's one of the things that, one of the challenges we face continually when we were working with um, school systems. So Bon Josette, where can people learn more about natural learning relationships and also find your books? Yes. Um, People can find the books on Amazon. Uh, we've published a lot of um, eBooks as well, which are very inexpensive, small pamphlets. They're all on Amazon. Um, we can, uh, uh, we have a website, www.lovemoreconsulting.com. And you can access us, access us through that website and learn about what we're doing today. Things like that, uh, where else? Oh, and Antioch University. Um, you yeah. Do a master's master of arts program uh, through the independent uh, master of arts program online. Well, I'll make sure to include all those on the show notes. Uh, it's great to see you guys. Let's not wait another 23 or four years for our next conversation. <laughs> and I wish you much success and luck in uh, with your Tibetan project. Thank you. And Michael, I ju we just want to say thank you for all the work you do because uh, we, can, we know and can tell about how important it is. So thank you for that. Thank you. I appreciate that. You guys have a great rest of your day.